In the late 19th century, Marianne Evans published a little novel called Middlemarch. It's actually 800 pages. It's not a little novel at all, but the subtitle is A Study of Provincial Life. She wrote under the pen name George Eliot to give her work the greatest likelihood of being taken seriously in that even more sexist time than our own. And although some of the early reviews were mixed, it has decidedly come to be seen as a classic. Uh, Indeed, quite a few major English writers and literary critics have hailed it as the greatest English novel. The greatest. Not too shabby, if that's what somebody is saying about your um, book. Along these lines, the Guardian newspaper has said that Middlemarch looms above the mid-Victorian literary landscape like a cathedral of words. They they mean that as a good thing. Uh, Virginia Woolf described it as a magnificent book, which with all its imperfections is one of the few English novels written for grown-ups. Hermione Lee, the president of Wolfson College, Oxford, called it the most profound, wise, and absorbing of English novels. Presumably, almost any writer would be extraordinarily grateful to have one's book appraised as such a monumental achievement. You, anyone of you have read Summerall of Middlemarch may or may not disagree. Uh, keeping in mind, though, this consensus of renowned literary critics that Middlemarch is a classic of world literature, I want to invite, also invite you to consider the other end of the spectrum. I spent a few minutes this past week exploring the anonymous Amazon reviews who rated uh, Middlemarch as worthy of a dismal one out of five stars. The following are just a few representative examples of these I hated it reviews. Too long and tedious, great for insomnia, was the first one. The second was too many characters and not one main character, so I got bored fast. That one was in all lowercase letters. Clearly, their single-minded focus on panning the book could not be distracted by pesky details like capitalization. The third was good God, that's how it began, with God spelled lowercase g-h-o-d. The author is trying to make her point with bombarding the reader with perpetual pontification. Just make your point and let the readers draw their conclusions. If it were well well written, we might get something from its historical perspective, but it was not well written. (laughs) Two more. Uh, I couldn't get more than a dozen or so pages into it. They they really tried, this reviewer. Um, They continued, the verbiage, uh, spelled incorrectly, it's verbiage with an I, uh, is archaic and sentences run on and on and on. Uh, The last one was, uh, there are actually many more, the last one that I bothered to quote was, uh, Eliot lacks wit and humor and uh, goes on and on about the most humdrum of details. Reading that review in particular made me want to shout, the subtitle is A Study of Provincial Life, You Were Warned. Or as that great contemporary wisdom teacher Billy Madison once said, at no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to you. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. But now I'm the one being mean to the reviewers. More seriously, what should we make of this wide spectrum of opinion? 
They were all reading the exact same novel, but reactions ranged from essentially the highest possible praise to the most flippant dismissal. One of the takeaways for me is is a reminder that there are billions of human beings on this planet, and for better or worse, if you are fortunate enough to have some people love your work, if something you create becomes popular enough, at least quite a few people, not only will they hate it, but they will try to go out of their way to let you know that they hate it. And even if we know intellectually that it is impossible to please all of the people all of the time, negative feedback can still be devastating. Indeed, it turns out that we humans have evolved to have a negativity bias. And my favorite metaphor for understanding this dynamic is um, from a book written by a neuroscientist named Rick Hansen. I know quite a few of of you have also read it. It's called um, Buddha's Brain. I would recommend it to you. Uh, And one of his phrases is that our brains have evolved to be like Velcro for negative experiences. They just latch right on and stick with us like Velcro. And that our brains have evolved to be like Teflon for positive experiences. They just slip right off. That negativity bias helped us survive back when uh, human life was primarily, primarily characterized, in the words of political philosophers, by continual fear and danger of violent death, and that our, the life of humans was primarily solitary, um, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. But in many ways, life has gotten better for we human beings, even if we have a long way to still evolve. The Industrial Revolution, coupled with a sharp decline in threats from starvation, predators, and disease, the three things that used to kill off huge swaths of us regularly, is the major reason why the world population of we Homo sapiens has septupled, has increased sevenfold in about 200 years from the late 18th century to today. When you look at the, you know, the chart of world population, it's like, like this until the late 1700s, and then it just spikes. And while huge problems clearly remain in the past few species, it is certainly the case that our species is thriving overall, whether that's a good or bad thing. Uh, We may end up taking the climate down with us, but that's a separate sermon uh, coming on Earth Day. Stay tuned. Uh, For this week, though, my point is that because for either way, no matter what our population was or how we learned to deal with climate change, our evolutionarily inherited negativity bias means that many of us need a three-to-one ratio of positive to negative experiences to counterbalance the ways that our brain tends to fixate on the negative. For instance, if Marianne Evans were alive today, I can easily imagine her thinking, wow, that's so amazing what, that, what Virginia Woolf said about my book. Like, you're just really celebrating that, and then almost at the main t- same time saying, but I just can't believe what reader 2307 and maybe too critical spelled with a, the numeral two and what a customer, a customer, uh, that they all hated it. I want to say, of course, who cares what anonymous internet trolls think, but our brains, for better or worse, make it easy for us to forget praise, no matter how high that praise is, and really easy for us to fixate on um, criticism, no matter who it comes from no matter how minor the slight. So what can we do to break that cycle, to interrupt that dynamic? I've shared previously about a spiritual practice called savoring. 
It's one of the simplest and most effective ways of increasing the positive to negative experiences in your life. It's a way of just taking those positive experiences that already happened to you and turning up the volume on them. So uh, to counterbalance, again, the ways that negative experiences, they're naturally going to tend to linger. So how do you make positive experiences linger? You savor them. So creating this uh, higher impact. So instead of allowing those positive experiences to just slip away like Teflon, slow down. Take a few deep breaths and really notice the ways that positive experience is showing up for you. What's going on in your body? How do you feel that positive experience? Or just take five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds to just linger with that positive experience. Really feel it. Allow it to to deeply sink into your spirit. Uh, just five, ten, or twenty seconds can really be can make a significant impact on the balance of your overall happiness. A related technique that I'd like to share with you this morning is called self-compassion. It essentially just means being kind to yourself. And if this sermon leaves you interested in learning more, there's a great uh, book titled Self-Compassion by uh, Dr. Kristen Neff. She's an associate professor of human development and culture at the University of Texas at Austin. For those of you who know the incredible work of Dr. Brene Brown, uh, Neff is doing for self-compassion what Neff has done, what Brown has done for vulnerability and courage. So both of these um, social scientists are showing us what does the data tell us about how we can uh, use these uh, dynamics skillfully in our daily lives. Being kind to yourself, it turns out, helps us both overcome our brain's negativity bias and helps grow our capacity to be more kind to others in that nest-building way that Irene was talking about earlier. And as we saw in our opening example of Middlemarch, there's no guarantee that others will be kind to us. In fact, the opposite you can count on happening from time to time. So we can start by controlling what we can, which is being kind to ourselves. Dr. Neff's book is filled with uh, many examples, many more than I will have a chance to get to this morning, about how does one practice self-compassion. And if you really want to go deeper, she's also co-developed a 10-week online course on mindful self-compassion. For now, in line with that finding that many of us need a 3-to-1 positive-to-negative ratio to uh, keep the balance of happiness in our lives, I'll share with you three ways of practicing self-compassion. The first can seem a bit silly, but here's the thing. It works, uh, silly or not. And I invite you to try it with me right now, if you're willing, and that is to give yourself a hug. Just wrap your arms around yourself. You can close your eyes if you want. Squeeze a little. Feel that. Feel that warmth. Feel your arms around yourself. Stay there if you need to. Uh, It's fine. I don't mind. And don't get me wrong. Getting a hug from somebody else is great, too, but... Fascinatingly, science shows us that our bodies don't think that self-hugs are silly. Even if up here you're thinking it's silly, your body doesn't think it's silly. Physiologically, our bodies still respond to that hug stimulus of warmth and care, irrespective of whether it's your arms. Our skin is this incredibly sensitive organ, and physical touch, whether by you or someone else, releases um, chemicals like like oxytocin that provides this sense of security, uh, soothes distressing emotions, uh, calms cardiovascular stress. So if you're feeling stressed out or distressed, you can give yourself a hug. Uh, Try it again right now, if you'd like.
It's fine. I don't mind. Uh, but sometimes we may find ourselves in situations where it might, we might be judged by others by just feeling like, you know, what's going on over there, man? Like, you know? Uh, so a, a one you can do more silently to yourself, or in addition to self-hugging, if you, it's okay to do that, is called reframing. So if you find yourself having trouble, this is really good if you find yourself having trouble being compassionate, because sometimes we, we do something or end up in a situation where we're just really beating up on ourselves, and you're like, I just don't even know how to be self-compassionate. So the one way to reframe that is to imagine what a very compassionate friend would say to you in this situation. Or if it helps you, you can say, what would I say to a in a spirit of compassion to a friend that were, if they were in a parallel situation to this. So that reframe of imagining what you would say to a friend or what a friend would say to you can help you kind of get out of that stuck place of beating up on yourself. And since we've already entered into the territory of silly things that nevertheless work, I'll add another pro tip from Neff, is that it also can work even better if you experiment with adding a term, uh, a term of endearment to your compassionate self-talk. So, you know, say to yourself, self, darling, honey, sugar lump, you know, whatever works for you. You know, you don't have to tell anybody else, just, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's just between you and you. Uh, you haven't gotten much sleep the last few nights, or you've had so many stressful deadlines to meet recently, or what, whatever the case may be. So be gentle with yourself, self, uh, darling, sugar lump, whatever. So in addition, and then in addition to giving yourself a hug, in addition to imagining what a friend might say to you uh, to help reframe the situation with or without a term of endearment, a third way of practicing self-compassion is to memorize a mantra. Uh, and if you're not into memorization, if that's likely to lead you to beat yourself up because you can't remember the mantra, uh, you can write it on a card, you can uh, put, save it as a note on your phone, whatever works. Um, Dr. Neff shares that whenever she notices something about herself that she doesn't like or when something goes wrong in her life or when she stumbles backward unintentionally, even though this is what she does professionally, into negative self-talk, she sil- this is the mantra she's developed for her. You're welcome to, she'd be glad for you to use this. You can tweak it. You can come up with your own. This is what works for her. She says to herself, self, uh, this is a moment of suffering, and suffering is a part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I give myself the compassion that I need. And the good thing is you're with yourself 24-7, so you know this can be done anytime, anywhere. Uh, and note that this ma- mantra reminds her not only of her intention that she's set to practice self-compassion, so she says to her again, may I be kind to myself in this moment, but it also reminds her that this too shall pass, right? So for her, it's the may, uh, uh, that this is just a moment of suffering. And it also reminds her that the other line is this um, suffering is a part of life. Often the, the uh, whenever we're entering into negative self-talk, that tends to be a very isolating thing that we're just sort of feel really cut off and I can't believe I did this. And what that saying that this suffering is a part of life reminds us that this is part of the human condition. All human beings suffer and that helps you to start building that bridge back to the world and back to other people instead of just isolating and self-flagellating. 
Of course, all of this is easier said than done. Neff readily confesses that even after many years of practice, she doesn't perfectly practice what she preaches all of the time because our brain's negativity bias, it's incredibly strong. It's developed over millions of years. You know, so this is a, it's an uphill battle. But we can make strides toward achieving more balance through doing these practices like savoring and self-compassion. In closing, I'd be remiss if I failed to share that the single most perverse thing that practicing self-compassion can lead to is people being harsh with themselves for failing to be self-compassionate. And at whatever point, if you're doing that, and you probably will if you take on this practice, at whatever point you wake up and notice that you've ironically spiraled into negative self-talk about failing to be self-compassionate, gently give yourself a hug. Or reframe. Imagine what a um, compassionate friend would say to you. Or repeat your mantra. This is a moment of suffering. Maybe this one I'm, you know, throwing fuel on the fire myself. But this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I give myself the compassion I need. As the saying goes, practice doesn't make perfect, but it does tend to make a little more permanent each time. Uh, Rick Hansen and other neuroscientists often frequently also say that neurons that fire together wire together. So that's part of what you're doing, too, is by practicing self-compassion, you're inculcating that. You're deepening that groove instead of the negative self-talk groove. So may we be increasingly intentional about practicing self-compassion. May we have increasing compassion for ourselves, increasing compassion for all sentient beings on this planet. May compassion for ourselves and compassion for all sentient beings, may that increasingly become second nature to us.